0: Hello, and welcome to NDA. I am Dave Wiskus. This is the show where I, uh, I guess, argue with YouTubers, creators, uh, people who I know and like in this business. Today, my guest is my good friend, uh, Mr. Legal Eagle, Devin Stone. Hey, Devin. I
1: I disagree with all of that.
0: (laughs) Good. We're off to a solid start. This is a fun one. You were the person- Actually, no, we're not. You were the person who pushed me into doing these on video- uh, there are a few few voices in that choir. I think yours was the loudest. Uh, and so, with you with you as the guest today, I felt like I should I should dress up a little bit.
1: Thank you. I, I appreciate it for for once in your your life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so known for dressing casual. It's good to have you here. Finally, we should have done this in person. We'll uh, we'll do a follow up in person at some point.
1: Sounds good. I, I don't think any of this is going to be usable. So uh, we'll we'll do the real one in person.
0: Okay, good. L- we should just say all sorts of things to get us canceled so that um, this is just. I mean, it's all, it's all
1: attorney-client privilege, so uh, none of this can see the light of day.
0: Well, the show is called NDA. so I, Finally, an episode that is true to the, the namesake. You should have a podcast called Attorney-Client Privilege. I, I am
1: trying to stay away from podcasts. I try and stay away from almost anything that involves me talking about legal issues without the opportunity to actually research that. Uh, the, the The dirty secret is that um, lawyers don't know everything off the top of their head. They actually have to do a crap ton of research. So uh, I, I will not be doing that anytime soon.
0: Uh, well, you don't talk about legal stuff. You can just talk about like... I don't know, creator economy stuff. Why don't you start a YouTuber podcast, Devin?
1: Yeah, like, like everybody else in the space?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. You could become a consultant. You could become a guru. Think of all I of mean, the information I, you could I impart. I kind of do do that
1: already. Um, it, for various reasons, people consider me an authority of, of sorts. So, <laughs> yeah, they, they'll come to me with that stuff anyway.
0: What do you think those reasons are? Why do you think people think of you as an authority?
1: The beard, mainly. Uh and, and the hair, probably.
0: You're not wearing a tie, so I think of you as being less authoritative today than usually.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I didn't anticipate that you were going to wear a suit, so, uh, so... That's why I asked I, I thought, you. I mean, this, this, is my, this is my casual wear. <laughs> this, is this is what you wear to play suit.
0: tennis. Uh, well, the reason I, when I asked you this morning, uh, are you going to suit up for this? I almost followed up by saying, well, if you, because you're going to dress up, I'll dress up too. And then I thought, if I say that you're going to show up in a t-shirt to fuck with me.
1: (laughs) I almost did. I thought about wearing a hoodie. I could have done that. It would have been (laughs) much more comfortable.
0: Yeah, I think on the video version of this, we're both going to look very, um, like we're in court. Like we're, we're sitting up a little straighter, uh, very poised. When I did, um... When I, when I filmed the jet lag after show um, in the room right behind me a couple weeks ago, whenever I do one of those, they just hand me a list of questions to ask them and I'm just there to ask the questions. That's my only purpose. I'm there to sit there and ask questions and while they talk, I sit still and I smile and I nod at them. And so for the hour and a half it takes to film that, I have to sit up perfectly straight. Because if I'm slowly slouching over the course of the thing and if they cut anything together, it's going to jump around. Like at some parts I'm slouching and looking like a slacker and at some parts I'm looking like Thomas Frank. Uh, So sitting there perfectly straight for an hour and a half, by the end, I just wanted to crawl into a bathtub of ice. I thought I was going to (laughs) die. The the point of the show is to argue about things. The point of the show is to find some... Something we disagree on, I think that's going to be easy here because we disagree on just about everything that's that, that
1: I, I do agree with that. We do disagree about just about everything
0: what What do you think is the biggest thing we disagree on? Gosh, I mean we disagree probably
1: about um, i mean lots of of sundry corporate issues, but also um, probably sponsorships in general, maybe affiliate deals. Ooh. Some, okay. Something along the lines of monetizing the creator economy, I imagine.
0: Okay, so let's talk about <laughs> – let's just, let's just go through the laundry list of airing our grievances today. That can be our, yeah. that can be our strategy.
1: Well, and, and the funny thing is, that, I mean, the way that you and I tend to disagree is that we'll talk for about an hour ostensibly disagreeing but also basically splitting hairs on something such that we – we actually agree with a vast majority of things.
0: Yeah, that you've just described how every episode of the show tends to work. <laughs> like you find the ways in which you disagree on something. I'm sure I've said this on the show before. If I haven't, I'll, I'll say it again a hundred times. But uh, the somebody once said to me that it's it's easy to see the ways in which you're right. It's much harder to see the ways in which you're wrong. Uh, but more, you you find more value there. So whenever I I encounter a moment where. Uh, there's some, some discord between me and someone else. I try to think through, like, I, I see my perspective. They may not, but I see my perspective. I'm not going to get anywhere trying to beat my perspective into this person unless I can take their side a little bit in in my head. Uh, And in the best of cases, if you're, if you're sort of, I don't like the devil's advocate thing. I'm not a huge fan of just arguing for the sake of arguing, but I do find that there are lots of occasions where in the course of a conversation, uh, exploring the reasons why you disagree with somebody are, um, that that's really valuable. And it, it tends to be on this show, and I think in conversation with you a lot, it's finding the things we disagree on and trying to poke holes in each other's arguments a little bit, not because we're trying to prove the other person wrong or prove ourselves right. But in the spirit, I hope of, uh, finding the right answer.
1: Yeah. Well, it's super easy to to poke holes in all the stupid things that you want to do. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Might as well do it on camera.
0: Jackass. This is, I, uh, if, if any episode is going to be great for like cutting clips out of this one might be it. We're going to be huge on TikTok. (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) YouTube lawyer mean to podcaster. YouTube lawyer berates agent. It's gonna be great. Uh, so the the yeah the 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 sponsorship thing, the affiliate deals. Let's talk about that. What is your perspective on affiliate deals?
1: That um, they can be perfectly reasonable things to do uh, as a creator, especially when. Um, uh, you know, if you're in the spot of someone who is running a singular sponsorship, then having other affiliate stuff in the background can be a perfectly reasonable way to monetize one's content. Um, I agree with that, yeah. Okay, all right, well, a- end of discussion. Well, I'd like I to thank my
0: guest, Devin Stone, for now. Uh, my, my contention <laughs> with, with, with uh, affiliate deals isn't um, having them. It's uh, replacing sponsors with an affiliate deal or Mm. treating an affiliate deal as if it's a sponsor because an affiliate deal is maybe money. An affiliate deal is if this works out, you, the creator, are going to take on the risk. And if it works, you'll get money, potentially infinite upside. But if it doesn't work, then you're screwed. And the sponsor, if you want to call them that, the affiliate company uh, takes zero risk and also gets infinite upside. Taking zero risk and getting infinite upside sounds like a great deal to me. So if I'm the, the aff- affiliate company, I would love to be in that arrangement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it fits into my larger philosophy that creators should be continually testing out new sponsors. And sometimes sponsors are hard to get a hold of. And maybe they have an affiliate deal, so you can do a proof of concept of maybe running um, what would otherwise be a sponsorship as an affiliate deal, because of, oftentimes the audience isn't gonna know the difference, and it allows you to sort of test the waters, and if you're right that there's good audience affiliate fit, then you, know, there, you can see the kind of um, numbers that you generate, and then you can turn around and take that to the marketing person at that particular company and say, look, you didn't even sponsor me, I drove a huge amount of traffic. I drove a huge amount of conversions. Uh, we should convert this into a more traditional sponsorship relationship, uh, which, you know, I, admittedly, you know, if you do enter into a more formal sponsorship, then you have the opportunity to get a higher percentage of the value that you generate, where, you know, an affiliate deal might be, uh, generally speaking, a much lower percentage. But, you know, getting your foot in the door, testing out new sponsors, you know if you have the bandwidth to do that and you're not living you know the equivalent of paycheck to paycheck on whatever sponsorships you're able to create i think it can make sense to add that into your repertoire and continually test out the new sponsors and you know i'm sure we can talk about the state of the sponsorship economy these days but it annoys me to no end that there are only certain sponsors who do sponsorships on New media when uh, you know legacy rates are are so high, and that just annoys the crap out of me, but that's a separate issue, I suppose
0: uh, we can get there in a second uh, for me the 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 affiliate thing, I think we agree for the most part where where it gets Godry. sticky for me is for for the the kind of creator who is high volume enough, high frequency enough in the things that they make. Uh, where you can, you have the room. You have the uh, ability to experiment a little bit more. Then experimenting makes a ton of sense. You can, you can do the videos that are designed to be. These keep the lights on. Uh, do one of those a week, and if you're doing two videos a week, you do one a week. These keep the lights on. The other video intended for more experimental plays. Do things with affiliates. What you're talking about is long game relationship strategy for building new relationships to diversify, which I think is great. That is an excellent thing to do. If you're a creator who makes one video a month or even one video every two weeks, your your flexibility to take on the risk of those experiments is very different. And where I think creators fall into a trap is thinking that, you can either just throw affiliate links into the descriptions of videos that already have sponsors and think that that won't have any consequences or trying to stack multiple sponsors in a video, which only an insane person would ever try to do, uh, or people who are willing to sacrifice guaranteed today money for maybe tomorrow money, which generally creators don't want to do anyway, so that's not as as big of a thing. But I think for, for me, it's... Um, if you can get everybody on board with there are some things you do that are intended to be experimental long game plays and some things you do that are, are the safe, keep the bills paid things for today, uh, then then I think we're on the same page.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I, I know we'll both agree that uh, TierZoo needs to increase his uh, video <laughs> frequency, that he posts not often enough, <laughs> and he needs to delegate more, and he needs to take more uh, at bats. Uh, so I, I think we're on the same page there. And, I appreciate the I,
0: continuity I'm, on the show now.
1: <laughs> I, I joke because we we love Patch and TierZoo, um, but he can be emblematic of this larger creator trend of not delegating enough and not recognizing what makes his channel particularly special and getting cabined into producing videos, you know, once every two months. And, you know, if you create a banger every two months, then yeah. Um, that's that not really that much of a problem. But there's no reason why he and many other creators can't um, build up their team to create more content. Um, whether it's main channel content, um, whether it is syndicating that content, whether it is doing shorts and being a multi-format creator, whether it's doing shorter videos in addition to the longer videos. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, variety and robustness when it comes to almost every aspect of the channel, whether it's the the format, the series that you can do, um, potentially the talent that's on screen and the sponsorships, because, you know, we've seen very recently, very high ticket sponsors just implode overnight. And even where the sponsor hasn't imploded, um, you know they they become toxic in a way that you, you know you don't want to run those sponsorships anymore so
0: I have no uh, idea what you could possibly be talking about
1: Yes yeah um you know the this industry is established and uh, the the titles that are available are are somewhat limited but um I don't know did that uh, did that scan um, no, I got you <laughs> But did yeah you- I mean I think that uh, success any creator who's able to get 10,000 subscribers is is capable of getting 100,000 subscribers. Anyone that's capable of getting 100,000 subscribers is capable of getting a million subscribers and you know, if you're talking about the view count that is this is the same. So, um it's just a matter of of recognizing that your channel is a business and that you need to delegate and expand your team to be able to do that and I think that whether it comes to team members and delegation or whether it comes to the sponsorships that you're running, it makes sense to expand and be robust as long as you're able to do that in a safe sort of still ROI positive way.
0: Yeah, I'm having a – I don't think there's a spoiler in here. I'm talking to a reporter from Mashable later today about um, the uh, implications for creators with uh, potential impending recession. And I I debated, should I even have this conversation? Is this a, an article I want to be a part of? Because the framing of the question when they had tweeted about it, what, it, it made it seem as if there was a presupposition that creators should be anxious because there will be a recession. Um, I don't know that I fully agree with that. Or at least if there is a re- – maybe there's a recession coming. Maybe. Who could say? Uh whether or not it'll affect creators is not a one-to-one with is there going to be a recession. And if it does affect creators, that doesn't mean it's going to affect creators in all genres on all platforms in the same ways. So the presupposition that creators should be anxious and be making plans for the impending recession, to me, feels a little fe- fear-mongery. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that is the intent uh, of the article, having – read the the reporter's other stuff that doesn't seem like that's their jam uh so i'm happy to to have the conversation but my when when i think about what should creators be anxious about if there is going to be a recession who should be worried the people who should be worried um actually i'll take one step further back there's a i won't name the company uh there's a a thing that that they a company that started reaching out to creators a couple days ago uh, where they 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 basically want to buy fractional shares of youtubers, so established titles, but for human beings who make video content, I guess uh, I, there's a bunch of things that are problematic about this, uh, but the biggest one is that it who is the sort of person for whom that works? who is the sort of creator for whom that works uh the the sort of person it it's almost like. This is a system designed to prey on the notion that there is an impending uh, recession or there is an impending end to your current uh, situation, and you'd better stock up now by selling your future to these strangers.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think those observations dovetail nicely, and I expect that we'll probably be on the same page uh, on this, but... I mean, I have I've had the conversation, the recession conversation with a number of different creators, um, and my feelings on on that are probably pretty similar to yours, which is that if I could choose a industry to be in when it comes to a recession, or whether it comes to you know a COVID scenario where you're forced to basically live at home, not interact with people, um, well, gosh. I would choose a, an industry that has extremely low overhead, that is scalable up or down, and is uh, available to people for free and supported by, you know, advertisements. Um, and you know, luckily, um, we happen to be in that exact industry. And um, what we, you know, everyone freaked out at the beginning of COVID that advertisers were going to go away and and, and even and even, behold, even
0: advertisers they're... did. Sponsors freaked out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Very briefly. Um,
1: And, you know, it happened that most of the sponsors that we deal with are also in a similar scalable position uh, where their ad spend can be ramped up or down. Their marginal cost is basically zero. So, you know, most of our sponsors were very well positioned to um, provide, you know, their services to people during a recession when they were stuck at home on their computers. Um, so yeah, as it turns out, other than a small blip at the beginning of the pandemic, creators made out like a like a bandit um, because of that industry. And I suspect that that same pathology holds true in recession, too, that you, if there's a larger re- recession, people will cut back on lots of things. They'll cut back on going, to, you know, to bars, going out and uh, spending lots of money on travel. But they they won't spend, they won't cut back on watching stuff on YouTube because effectively all of that stuff is free. You could pay for a YouTube premium or not um, and you can watch it for free. So I, you know, it's possible that ad rates might go down, but my feeling has always been that really, um, YouTube is going to continue to eat the lunch of legacy media that, uh, given the choice, I think people will continue the trend of spending less money on television and radio and spending more money on new media like YouTube. Yeah. And as a result, um, you know, creators are in a great position. And I'm, I'm, I remember that uh, Mr. Beast's manager, uh, Reed, put out a, a little PDF uh, when everyone was really worried about the recession and, you know, it, it, it had some good stuff. It had some bad stuff. Uh, the one thing that I remember is like, oh, yeah, creators might want to rethink buying that Lamborghini. I mean, that's, um, that's just good advice <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but uh, but I'll, I think the underlying thing there is that the vast majority of creators don't have a huge amount of overhead unless you buy into the hype house and the Lamborghini buying set. So, if you are worried about the recession, don't spend overly on unnecessary expenses, and you'll probably do fine. And by that same token, I don't. I also don't see who is the creator that um, that would benefit from a huge cash infusion um, to you know ten x or one hundred x their YouTube channel. Most YouTube channels are so low overhead and they're cash businesses, such that. Getting a huge infusion of cash from these, these equity-buying companies makes no sense to me.
0: It's destructive. It, it would only encourage you to spend that money on things you don't need, chasing the lifestyle or or whatever of a larger creator.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems really predatory that, you know, you get an upfront infusion of the AdSense that you were going to make over a year or two anyway, but you get, I don't know, 60% of that upfront. And then, uh, you know, this company gets the remaining 40% over time. And it's just, yeah, um, it, makes, it makes no sense. I mean, it's, it's for people that are innumerate, um, that want the money to spend on a Lamborghini without really figuring out what yeah. the, the best path is for their channel.
0: Yeah, how does the math work on that? That if it's 64, then it ends up being like a 50%, a 50% loan that you didn't need to take? Yeah. 50, 50% interest loan? Like, yeah. and uh, I, I want to start making t shirts that say this nobody is $50,000 away from being Mr. Beast. Nobody. Yeah. And the thought that taking a cash infusion is going to change the trajectory of your channel, it just won't. I, the, I'm yeah, sure know. that I will get a tweet from somebody <laughs> who will swear that for them this would work, and maybe it would, but they're sort of the exception that proves the rule. Like the the that creator, it's so few and far between that that would be genuinely positively impactful. It's a that's a, a rounding error. Those people, and you can get that money other places. If your yeah. channel is is in a position, if your business is in a position, that would even be a good thing. You can probably go to a bank and convince them to give you a small business loan. If you show them yeah. the receipts, if you show them your your tax returns, you can probably get a small business loan. If it's not worth the effort of that. To get a loan with like a five to ten percent interest rate, why are you taking a loan with a fifty percent interest rate?
1: Right. I mean, I think that's a really good litmus test. Is okay. So you say you need the cash for something. Um, if you if you can't convince someone to give you the debt rather than selling the equity, then you don't actually need the cash. It's not actually going to be the thing that that helps you. And um, yeah, I mean, I so rarely see an opportunity where selling equity makes sense um, that, yeah, the, de- the debt financing is is almost always the, the better way to go. And, you know, ironically, the exception that might prove the rule on this is Mr. Beast. And it's not because a huge cash infusion would be good for the main channel, but rather, he has entered into some ventures that I think are worthwhile to pursue. Beast Burger... Uh, fe- uh, feastables.
0: Yeah. We're where, leveraging his channel makes sense.
1: Yes. You're, you're, you're leveraging the main channel success. And it's the kind of thing that might have a startup cost because it is a good, honest to goodness, brick and mortar company that you might need some upfront financing to be able to do it. And we have seen that he has sold off portions of his company, uh, in order to finance it. The, you know, I suspect that he sort of preyed on VCs not knowing exactly how to value it, so I suspect he he probably got a good deal and, and didn't have to sell that much equity to get, you know, the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that he needed, um, whereas your average creator, you know, is leveraging, you know, a huge portion of their, their ongoing um, cash, uh, so it's not the kind of thing that makes sense, so... Yeah, no, I would, and I think I would for, stay away from those companies
0: for for Jimmy. He was in a situation I know a little bit about. I've, I've talked to him about this. Um, I was pushing, I was in North Carolina pushing really hard that he shouldn't do it. Um, uh, when he got, I think, one of the first rounds of potential terms. So I know I, I've, I'm talking out my ass, but I know a little bit. Um, my understanding is that by the time he got to a place where a deal was even on the table, he already had. Uh, the channel he had feastables he had mr beastburger he had the merch line he had enough businesses set up that he's not just leveraging the channel he was leveraging the totality of the business that he had built which is smart and taking investment at that stage is not a creator taking investment in their channel which i don't think any yeah. creator should ever do it is a a business person using the channel which was the or the, the 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 inciting thing the 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 catalyst for the rest of the business um, and the core of the brand, including that in the larger business. But I believe, and I could be wrong on this. I believe that there's like some carve out in there that if, if, uh, if anything happens, he keeps his videos. Mm. Again, could be talking to my ass, but I believe that there's something like that, which that that would be a smart way to do it. But nobody else should look at him and say, I need to do that.
1: Um, let me push back a little bit in the sense that. Um, the thing that I'm most impressed with Jimmy about, and the thing that I think is emulable, if that's a word, that, sure. that other creators can emulate um, and should emulate, is starting their own businesses. Mm-hmm. That the it's it, it you know it doesn't take millions of dollars. It, it really it, you can start a business for a hundred dollar filing fee, and and I think I think much or many more creators than are currently doing it should do it because yes, if you're profitable for a sponsor, um, the the you know the margin that they are giving you is necessarily a very small percentage of the ultimate revenue that they are generating. You know they have overhead, they have staff. Um, you know they not every marketing play is going to work, and so necessarily the sponsor is going to pay you what I call thin dollars for. The stuff that you're doing now. Granted, those sponsorship dollars are still a lot bigger than sort of mass marketing, AdSense related stuff, where you're just placing ads that are not even necessarily connected to to your channel. Uh, those are the 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 really thin dollars. But um, for relatively low amounts of of capital, creators can create their own companies, create a product, create a digital product. Um, and and they can recoup the much fatter dollars um, that would otherwise go to a sponsor who's not going to pay them uh, the same amount of, or the same uh, ratio, or the same percentage of, of funds. So I think that Jimmy is really smart in that way. We've seen it with um, KSI and Logan Paul, with their Prime. I mean, Prime already is a $100 million business, and... Uh, I think it has a better reputation than either KSI or Logan Paul. It'll probably outlive them. And it's a f- literally months away from probably being a multi-billion dollar business based on, on revenue. So um, all of that stuff can be replicated on a smaller scale. And that's a, a way you can really turbocharge your channel is if you own the business that is the sponsor.
0: I don't know. I think creators getting together and building businesses that have a brand apart from any individual creator is a crazy idea and it would never work. (laughs) Impossible. I always try to be careful to not let this become a show about Mr. Beast. I think that is the trap that everyone falls into uh, with these creator economy podcasts. It is an easy trap to fall into because he's such a big obvious target and so many people are trying to emulate what he does. What I want to make sure that I don't ever do is become one of those, well, here's what he did, so here's what you should do. Because if we're talking about titles and thumbnails, yes, follow his example all day, every day. (laughs) If we're talking about business strategy, asterisk. If we're talking about content strategy, asterisk. If we're talking about uh, social strategy or uh, the the way you pursue your audience, there's asterisks on all of this. But the biggest thing I would say when it comes down to It is easy to look at him and say, he has done interesting things in business. I should follow that lead as a creator. I should do what he's doing. In the same way that it's easy to say, he's got lots of views. I'm going to make a Mr. Beast style channel, which, spoiler, fucking everyone is doing. And if I were one of those creators, I would be really nervous uh, about at what point is the audience saturated? At what point is the market saturated? At what point does the audience move on? And now you only have skills in copying a person who's no longer the height of popularity. Maybe you learn some video skills along the way. Maybe you make some money along the way, but you're not prepared for a future that has moved uh, beyond you.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the danger in any discussion of the creator economy is that some advice is basically universal. Anyone at any level can adopt it. Right. Some of the advice is bad and should not be adopted uh, on on any level at any place. And uh, people succeed in spite of the bad advice. And then there's the advice that depends on the time and the place. That yeah. it might be good for one person and it might be bad for another. It, it depends. So, you know, Jimmy is doing some things good. Uh, he's doing some things well. He's doing some things poorly. And some things work for him that wouldn't work for others. And so, you know, the trick is obviously figuring out what category all this stuff falls into. But I, I would say that the, there are a lot more people that are not creating their own businesses that should than there yes, are people right. who are creating their own businesses when they shouldn't. That, I think the, Type one versus type two error.
0: Where I'm going with this, and it, it goes back to the um, established titles, but for human being YouTubers, a question that I, I will often pose to a creator is, is this your job? Or are you building a business? Like you should be thinking of, your, of yourself as a small business owner. And I think yeah. that the the trap that it's easy to fall into and the trap that this company that I won't name um, is perpetuating or any of these like payday loan style, we're going to give you money up front for your AdSense or we're going to give you money up front for whatever or we're going to give you insane amounts of money to syndicate your content and we're going to make you sign crazy deals where if you don't stay with us forever, you have to give us the money back, which... All right. Uh, what all of these things kind of perpetuate is the notion that you are the business. And I think that's an easy trap to fall into. You as a creator are not a business. Um, I remember when Marina McGilko became the first and, and hopefully last creator to take investment in themselves personally, yeah. there was a big discussion at least in, in our circles around like, wow, that, that sure does sound like a totally different concept from a long time ago. That's um, cool. Uh, you are not the business. And I think that it's easy to look at Jimmy and think that, well, he did this. People are investing in him. These, the, whoever is investing money in that brand, they don't own a piece of Jimmy. They own a piece of an enterprise that has scaled up and has proven itself to be a money making venture. He is at the center of it, but his disappearance from that venture is, is calculated into the, uh, the cost of, of purchasing equity. That risk is baked in. You as a creator, small YouTuber getting 100,000 views per video, you're amazing. And uh, like you, you are the heart and soul of the creator economy, but you are not a business. Your channel is. And you got to be really careful not to uh, allow the predators to attach things to you personally that are more about the business. And when your channel is your name or when the channel is entirely you, it's really easy to blur that line. But I think that there, uh, I I worry that, that the blurring of that line, uh, makes it easy to take advantage of people.
1: Yeah. You know, the evolution of my channel and myself, um, is, is kind of interesting. The distinction. I agree. You are interesting. Sorry. I agree. You are interesting. (laughs) not to make this about me but let's make this about me the um the distinction that that i often make is that uh are you self-employed are or or are you an owner of a business Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if you know if you're self-employed then you still got to work and most youtubers are self-employed and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but it's interesting that and i consider myself among those youtubers i consider myself self-employed for the most part i mean it's a spectrum but I got into it uh, specifically trying to avoid that because when I left my cushy big firm job, I was trying to create businesses that were separate from myself that would run themselves and chasing that elusive passive income. And with moderate success, I created several information courses related to helping law students through law school, and if I had made that my primary focus uh, over the years, I have no doubt that that would be a six-figure-plus business, and that would be great. I'd be making way more than the median salary. It really wouldn't necessarily rely on me working every single day. Um, But (laughs) I I got so much success being on screen, um, doing general-facing law-related videos, that now I've come around, and now I'm back to being self-employed again, or employed again because the channel doesn't at the moment doesn't really work without me so in that respect i consider myself self-employed and and that's fine it's definitely a much better job than when i was at the 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 big firm but i also recognize that there are things that i can do to create more of a business to become more of an owner that will not only make the YouTube channel more profitable, but it might allow me to step back from being on screen if I ever wanted to do that, even though I have no interest in doing that right now.
0: Well, in my mind, let me say that differently. So who in our space has done anything like this successfully? My first thought goes to our good pal, Wendy. you got Wendover Productions, you've got Half as Interesting, you've got Jetlag. All three things don't have his name And even the thing that you associate most with Sam, Wendover Productions, um, is not – I I don't even know if it's the biggest of the three anymore.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's a good example. I think Thomas Frank is also a good example. Even though the name of his main channel is Thomas Frank and the name of his second channel that is exclusively focused on Notion for reasons that I do not understand is called Thomas Frank Explains. Despite that, and we can debate how terrible that a, a, of a name that is for his, his second channel that is focused <laughs> only on Notion, let's put that aside for the moment. He is has created a Thomas reputation Frank for himself notions. as creating, and it's well-earned, the best Notion-related content out there. And not just video content, but actual add-ons for the software Notion. Um, right. And, and frankly, I mean, I, I think he should... He should work out a deal where I think he he gets uh, equity in Notion. Um, But uh, putting that aside, his business is, you know, a six-figure-per-month business exclusively focused on Notion add-ons. And I think that's only going to expand. So... Um, he is on the path to expand away from being self-employed and he has other employees that help him out with all this stuff. Um, So I think Wendy is probably the best example with Wendover Productions and Jet Lag, But I think Thomas is not too far behind.
0: Thomas, I I worry, is still so reliant on himself as the core of the brand. Even if you go to, he has the, um, like a how-to YouTuber uh, guy. I forget what it's called now. I'm blanking on it. Sorry, Tom. Uh, But if you go, it's like, nothing but pictures of him and links to his videos and it's like this could be a great resource if it were just like a little de thomasified right now it feels like he's trying to sell me something because i think he comes from a genre where that is how you do things not because he's that guy he's not that guy and my biggest frustration with tom is he always comes off as that guy when he is the least that guy guy i've ever known uh but that like I am here to sell you guru things. And he made the argument, I believe on this show, that he engages in those communities because he thinks that it's good to have a voice that doesn't believe those things in those conversations. Okay, fair enough. But when you go to those tools and all you see is his face and the name Thomas Frank, Thomas Frank, Thomas Frank, at what point can he walk away from it? If he's not young, fit and pretty someday, does he keep being that central figure? Or does it make more sense for him to start branding it away from him a little bit? Include other voices. And I don't think it's something you can do overnight.
1: Yes. uh, I agree with that 100%. The only thing I'll add and slightly push back on is that while his main channel, Thomas Frank, is inseparable from Thomas Frank, I think he does not have that hard of a row to go down to rebrand the second channel, to oh, agree. make it not reliant on his face, to call it something else other than Thomas Frank Explains, to make it more generalized content such that he doesn't need to be the actual person on screen. I don't think most people go to his Notion-related videos and rely on Thomas Frank or or even get that much additional value from the fact that it's Thomas Frank, which is in contrast to his main channel. So... Um, should he ever want to rebrand? I don't think it would be that hard for him to do that related to I don't think Notion so either. stuff. He can just be the central place that you go to when
0: you want Notion content. I don't think it will be hard. Uh, I just think he should do it sooner rather than later. hmm Thomas Frank explains, in a genre that is, like, notorious for mansplaining, a man's name explains just... I don't know.
1: Yeah, he should have called it the Thomas Frank Inforium.
0: Uh, and then his twitter account uh is tom frankly so everyone thinks his last name is frankly (laughs) there's layers of confusion here maybe go with that or something i don't know i don't know but who else in this space um other than than wendy with his uh explainer videos documentaries and game show um or thomas with his um uh, lifestyle advice, Notion tutorials, and 10-part uh, tweet threads. Uh, who else in this space, in our corner of the the world here, is doing what you would consider to be, uh, uh, building what you'd consider to be a business, not just being self-employed?
1: Not that many people in the educational YouTube space. At least nothing comes to mind. But looking outside of our own genre... Um, there is, um, oh gosh, the, the name escapes me, but, um, there's a famous vlogger that has a coffee company and, and obviously, you know, people like Graham Stephan have expanded into running their own coffee and tea related companies. Um, didn't that not work out?
0: Didn't, didn't bankroll not do too well? Didn't he make a whole video about this?
1: no, I mean, that it's classic Graham Stephan clickbait. It's fine. the, 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 they had to increase their price because the price of all of their um, the the goods went up. So you know that's the the terrible thing that he had to do. Um, okay. And then you have you know other creators creating energy drink companies. We saw with Logan Paul and KSI. The I mean <laughs> we can debate the the merits of it, but the, the Nelk brothers, the Nelk boys, Not did boys. something similar. Um, there is Yikes. an interesting channel called. I think it's Mike's off-road recovery where it's just content where this guy rescues four by fours that get stuck in the dirt or the beach. And he has um, a line of basically these, these straps that you connect to your car to someone else's car. And you wouldn't think that that would be a huge business, but it's enormous. I mean, it's I think multiple millions per year and it's Mike's off-road branded uh, ratchet straps or whatever. And, Um, so the examples are out there and the money that's on the table is ridiculous. Um, but you, you
0: know, you need to have good product market fit. It doesn't have to just be products. I think the thing that Wendy's doing is he has built out a video production company where at some point you can swap his voice for a different voice and you get documentaries or explainer videos that are, uh, on par with what you're used to. Uh, I think at some point, the format of jet lag, if, if Sam wasn't on the show for a season, but Ben and Adam still were, you can still get the same amount of excitement around the show, uh, at least in the, the short term. And you can, you can build that up to where you could eventually have him step away entirely. The brand, the format works independently of an individual person. Not to say that he's not an electrifying personality on camera. Everybody loves Sam. Uh, but I think it's intentional that the format doesn't revolve around him individually and that there are other characters on the show. Uh, So I don't think it necessarily needs to be just a product like, I don't know, Dr. Mike selling scrubs or something. Uh, It could be, I I was asked uh, last night, we had a sponsor who I I won't name here, um, ask about like, hey, do do you have any creators who do like consulting on how to build channels? We want to build a YouTube channel that's a whole enterprise that that could be scaled up around just doing that uh creators leaning on their skills and building businesses around the skills they've developed as creators is just as valid as the uh the content they produce the type of content they produce um, or any products that would be attached to uh their brand as the audience knows it today so doing like straps for uh, a channel that does that sort of thing, that makes sense and that's good. But do those things continue to sell if the channel goes under? Do people still go to Mr. Beast Burger because it's such a great restaurant, even if um, we all get memory wiped on who Mr. Beast is? Like how attached is this to that person?
1: Yeah. Well, and and we were having a conversation with another creator about, conceptually, the, the way that I think about it is most YouTube channels are on a spectrum of, is it people-driven or is it idea-driven? And, you know, it's it's not binary, but there are channels uh, that exist solely because the people are invested in the hosts. So, yeah. you know, probably Casey Neistat would fall into that example. And then there are channels where it is solely based on the idea or the format of the channel itself. And, as much as I would like to think that people care about me as a personality, uh, what I have found is that when I lean into the video or the channel being about me as an individual human person, people don't really care that much, Um, which uh, is sad on one level, but by the same token, it frees me up to focus on the idea and the information that is being conveyed by my videos, and that means that it doesn't necessarily need, need need to be me that's hosting that particular video. And the interesting thing about Jimmy is that I think his videos are mainly about the idea that, you know, last person to take their hand off a Lamborghini wins the Lamborghini. I'm surprised that he hasn't leaned into a more... Um, uh, Uh, you know, a a group of hosts. I mean, he does that a little bit with with his friends, but every single Mr. Beast video on the main channel has to have Jimmy in the video. And that's good for a while, but, you know, if you're able to expand out from that, you can, again, increase your production um, by focusing more on the content itself rather than the, the personalities.
0: Do you think that's why it's attractive for him or for folks like him to put out a call hey, who would want me to invest in their channel? Because from his perspective, it may make more sense to become a part owner of a YouTuber's channel uh, that is smaller than his than it would be to hire in talent and build out a new property. But ultimately that might be serving in his mind the same goal or for that sort of person where it's about having a second show that is hosted by somebody else, just go out and acquire one or acquire a a part of one to bring into your stable.
1: Yeah. Look, it's a great deal for the people getting the equity, almost always. I mean, we've seen these deals time and time again, whether it's Jimmy, whether it's another company. um, And there's a reason that there are so many out there. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think the vast majority of creators don't understand the economics of it. Um, I remember... Before I had started my YouTube channel, a friend of mine had 40,000 Twitter followers. And when I was starting my law school-related products, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if my friend tweeted about my law school product because 40,000 followers on Twitter is so many people, and there must be hundreds if not thousands of people who are thinking about law school or are in law school in that that bunch of 40,000, if he could just... Tweet it out; it would send this this company through the moon. And now I recognize that, a forty thousand isn't that many. B, it's not my audience, so they don't care. Um, and and C, you just you can't foist (laughs) content on people that don't want to hear it. So even if there had been like a call to action to go to my law school related stuff, it would not have moved the needle at all. And people just don't understand that they think that they are. One tweet away, one investment from a big creator away from, you know, getting that algorithmic juice, and they don't recognize that. If you make good content, the audience will find you, and the algorithm is incentivized to find the audience that wants to see that stuff. Uh, you cannot push your stuff uh, on other people unless you're paying, you know, large amounts of money for, you know, ads and and things like that.
0: But also uh, with Twitter. 40,000 followers doesn't mean 40,000 people are going to see a tweet. It means there are 40,000 accounts that have selected to see tweets from that account. And I think I've complained about this many times, but there are people, I think Twitter now is mostly used by people who are there to broadcast to what they perceive as an audience. I tend to do this now too, just because like, I'm not listening to anybody else on Twitter. I'm not speaking to a group of friends. I'm just going to like opinion. I'm, I'm going to opine at the ether. And if that sticks for somebody, great. Uh, so no shade thrown there. But th- there are people who tweet as if their their audience, their follower count is the number of people who showed up to watch them speak. Like I sold right. tickets. Uh, you, you are you are a, a an item in a news ticker at the bottom of a screen. You are not headlining Coachella. The fact that 100,000 people follow you that's air quotes for the people who are not watching the video version of this. The people that, that's not 100,000 people following uh, the, the people who follow you. They are not there, hanging on your every word. You are one of a hundred or a thousand voices scrolling up their screen, and the chances of them ever seeing you are probably about 10 to 20 percent. So, uh, going out there and, and and approaching it as if I could just get this celebrity to tweet about my thing, because they have an audience of however many people, That most of that audience is never going to see the message. And then most of the people who do aren't going to care. And most of the people who do care um, may or may not have uh, money or a situation or the wherewithal to, to act on that. So these numbers in social media in general tend to be um, uh, fabrications within our imagination rather than an actual Indicator of of anybody's level of give a shit
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's vanity metrics all the way down and the exact same analysis (laughs) is Doubly true for YouTube subscribers that oh god, even though I've used subscribers as a metric in this conversation I'm cognizant of the fact that it's basically worthless that at at Mm. some point someone clicked the subscribe button but YouTube doesn't really care in the sense that if you subscribe to someone, they're not necessarily going to show you more content from that person. It's going to look at your actual behavior. So yeah, almost everything is a vanity metric. And it's just a shorthand, I guess, um, for being able to convey certain ideas.
0: Yeah, I think it's a concept. And it's a thing that we tend to use to try to impress each other. Rather, it's It's a metric of success like, if you told me that the amount of money that you had accumulated, uh, if, if the total amount of money you've ever been paid by every job you've ever had is $20 million, that's an impressive number. But if you then follow up with, I have $60 in my bank account, that's impressive, but in a different way. Uh, th- <laughs> those, those numbers don't add up. The total amount of money you've ever been given is not the total amount of money you have. Uh, but it is still something. It tells me something about you. Sometimes it can tell me, like you need context for these numbers. Um, if you've been right. at this game for a decade and you've got six million subscribers, uh, but you're only getting a hundred thousand views per video, sometimes peaking up to a million, then that tells me that th- there's been a lot of people over time who have been interested, and then their interests changed. Maybe that's about you. Maybe it's not. Uh, yeah. But it, it 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 means you've got longevity and that interest has, has gone down this path over time. So you have to go back and look at uh, what, what do view counts look like over time? Did you used to get six million views a video and now you don't? Did you lose your, your way somewhere along the, the path? Um, if you're a brand new channel with uh, four videos and two million subscribers, I'm gonna be suspicious. That number doesn't sound real. And sometimes you see that, like the second video ever has six million views or whatever. You're like, right. "Well, what happened here? That doesn't sound right."
1: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that on a long enough timeline, we all have a million subscribers. <laughs> so <laughs> the the incidence of how long it took you to get those subscribers matters a lot as as you just mentioned. And but right, I mean, there is some information conveyed that it's a proxy for the fact that there were a number of people who at one point liked your content enough to hit the subscribe button. And maybe that means you have huge numbers of views right now. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe that was a long time ago. And, yeah, I would say, all things being equal, someone that has earned a million subscribers over the last two years probably has a better YouTube channel in the sense that it's more popular than someone who gained a million subscribers over ten years. Um, mm-hmm. That's... it just... It, it takes time to gain those subscribers. And it's easy... It's easier to convey the number of subscribers than it is to say well over the last quarter my average views per video has been x amount in the first 30 days. Um, You know that is arguably a much better metric of how well your channel is doing right now but again it might be an apples to oranges comparison because maybe you haven't released a video in the last three months. So there's lots of different confounding factors uh, to, to think about when trying to compare One channel to another.
0: What if you had to do, what if any given YouTuber had to do like a quarterly earnings report for investors, uh, explaining like, yeah, our month, our, our quarter over quarter subscriber growth is 15% and view counts are up 17%. Like if you start thinking of things the way that businesses do, it's a little bit different. Uh, like I could, I could go out and announce today the number of people who have ever subscribed to Nebula our subscriber count is that impressive absent any other context is that impressive yes it's a it's a pretty big number uh if i then tell you only this many people are still subscribed that's also an impressive number but now in context it seems much less impressive yeah uh so like we pick and choose the information that we we share with each other when you are a creator talking to other creators or, or even framing your business in your mind, what are the metrics you should care about? Like where uh, – for you, when you look at your growth, if you look at analytics every day or every week or, or however uh, much attention you're paying, what are the metrics for your business, Devin, that, that you look at as uh, signs of health?
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny that you mentioned sort of a quarterly report because I basically do do that for my channel because That's I do zero of percent channel –
0: Sorry? I'm 0% surprised. That, of oh, yeah. course you would do.
1: <laughs> it, it's a business. So I need to keep tabs on things. And yeah, my KPIs would probably include the number of views that my average normal video gets in the first 30 days, specifically looking at the views in the first seven days, because those are the views that tend to drive the most and the highest percentage of conversions for sponsors um, after uh, after the first 7 days it tends to drop off pretty significantly and you know we've we've debated a lot why that is um but i think that the the best theory is that if there's a huge spike in views after the first 7 days it's probably because the video is getting viral views and viral views by definition are not your core audience. They're going to a wider audience that maybe don't care about you, maybe don't trust you, maybe actively hate you, which happened when I made a video about uh Darman and how his video about law was was really stupid and it did 4 million views in the first 60 days, but most of that People were Darman fans who were saying, "You don't understand. It's It's about the message. It's not about whether it's legally accurate or not. Um, So, very few conversions for my sponsor on that one. And and then, I mean, that's really the main part. And and actually, I know because uh, our mutual friend uh, Josh Cohen at at TubeFilter runs an analytics platform and has told me that over the last year the number of views that my average video gets in the first 30 days has doubled uh, year over year. And that's because that is something that I care about. And I have been working to optimize thumbnails, titles, topics um, to make sure that it's what people actually care about. And so you might have seen on my channel, there's been a transition away from reaction style content to more news related content, because Mm -hmm. that's the stuff that people actually care about and it really gets the views. And so apart from that KPI, I also look to CPMs, uh RPMs and you know how much money the channel is generating on any given um month not because it's something that i can necessarily move the needle it sort of takes care of itself if i increase the number of views that my videos get uh you know that will result in uh, an increase in the revenue but i just need to keep tabs on the health of the channel make sure i can pay all my employees and um, make sure that my business is is in the black rather than the red. But uh, yeah, I mainly focus on average views per video.
0: I think the, aiming for more views front loaded, good, which is weird because the the algorithm itself is uh, tilting over time to more and more evergreen content. I think partially, I'd love to I'd love to pretend that that is some response to YouTube hearing our our cries for. Uh, the sort of destructive nature of treating everything we do as being ephemeral. I think it has more to do with YouTube realizing that ever an evergreen content catalog being rewarded is ultimately better for them. Because uh, as we see on Nebula, the day a video was published kind of means nothing. If it's topically interesting, it's topically interesting. Not, I mean, there's stuff like TLDR News or a lot of what you do where it's it's more timely and it's of that moment. But a video essay about... Uh, the Lord of the Rings, that that movie is what twenty years old now, anyway. So, or E.T., i T. I'm picking Lindsay stuff. Uh, video essays about movies, um, that video essay will always be interesting on its own. There's no need to to, to suppress that in any way. Uh, so, the even though there is more of a push platform wide to uh, evergreen content, I, I guess, in the long form stuff. I think it is smart to to lean into the first thirty days because that is where you're going to get, uh, as you say, the most attached audience participating. Uh, so, sort of for the the folks at home here, what we tend to see, and this isn't just on on Devin's stuff, but like uh, across every creator, the the highest number of conversions, even if a video has pretty steady views over a, a, a like, over the long tail. Um, most of the conversions come in in the first, mm, I'd say three to seven days, depending on the creator. Um, the way we track that is views per conversion. So for several of our sponsors, most of our sponsors at this point, we have an arrangement where we get conversion data, often in real time. And we can see uh, the video is up to this many views and it has this many conversions. Okay, divide one number by the other. You can see that uh, for every 400 people who viewed, one people signed up for the sponsor. Uh, 300 to 600 views per conversion is pretty good. Anything over 600, you're in pretty weak territory. Anything under 300, you're in really good territory. We've seen we've seen creators do reads lately that go below 200 views per conversion, which is bonkers. Uh, but when that happens, it tends to be on underperforming videos. So videos that. Uh, don't get the viral views but still get the core audience views so the the point i'm driving at here to give context to to what we're talking about is that the reason that you would want to emphasize the the first 30-day views uh, is because you're getting more of the engaged audience who's likely to convert in that time frame so reaching the widest possible core audience is better does that sound right devin
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm I'm running a business here, and I am self-employed in that business. So I am optimizing to make the business as profitable as possible. And uh, And it's great because the incentives are aligned in the sense that the more the audience gets what they want, the more profitable the business will be because they vote with their eyes. And if they want to see something, they will watch it. And if they don't want to see something, they won't watch it. So over time, it used to be that, uh, so the channel started with basically 100% reaction content or sort of evergreen legal related stuff. Then it went to a cadence of one news related video to one evergreen reaction or legal story, narrative video essay. And now the ratio is about one to three. It's sort of one reaction, evergreen legal thing to three news-related things, and and that's what people like.
0: When you – I was talking to um, Peter, foreign man from a foreign land uh, last week, about the the things – the difference between the videos that you make for you and the videos that you make for the audience and like sort of the concept of selling out as a YouTuber – like you're chasing views or – or, but if you start out, in his case, making videos about Bahamian culture and trying to teach and you slowly drift to making videos about pop culture through that lens, is that selling out or is that just like you make decisions along the way? You're building a business. You might be self-employed. You're, you're still building your, your business you have to make decisions if the audience is if there's more audience, more money, more opportunity, more uh clout, more reach over here and you slowly step over there you, you with everything you do you're making decisions, right, about the the ways in which you sell out. I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. Do you see what you do as uh with with this pivot you are deviating from your mission or is this about uh uh, how do you think of that, I guess, spiritually?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's super easy for me. I mean, I'm a corporate lawyer. I sold out a long time ago. And, uh... <laughs> no, um, so, yeah. So the mission of the channel is to explain the legal concepts that people interact with on an everyday basis um, that they wouldn't otherwise have the legal perspective on. And, you know, I think of it as a Venn diagram. There is the type of content that I'm interested in. There's the type of content that my audience is interested in. And as long as there's overlap between there, I will make a video anywhere in that area of overlap. And as it happens, you know, I became a litigator because I didn't like specializing in one particular area of the law. And so in practice, on an everyday basis, you know, a client would come to me or my firm and they would have some sort of legal issue to deal with. And with rare exceptions no one had dealt with this particular issue and so it's the job of the litigator to become familiar with that area of the law even though they might not have never they might not have ever practiced in that particular area mm. and you know in in on my channel that happens every single day that depending on who's president or what crazy legal thing has happened in the news it's probably not something that your average lawyer has dealt with and has familiarity with, and so the job, as I see it, is to then understand this area of the law and apply it to this thing that has happened in pop culture or the news, and then distill it down to its essence so that I can explain it to non-lawyers. And I think that process is incredibly interesting. I get to learn new things every single day. My intuition on these things is not always right. and that's one of the reasons that I try to avoid live content is because the uh, corpus of American jurisprudence is incredibly vast and there's always some statute or some case that's out there that unless you actually read it and research it and find it, you wouldn't necessarily know the answer to these questions. But that's what my YouTube channel is about. So it's incredibly fulfilling to be able to learn something new And to be able to explain that to the audience. And I think that's the real value proposition of the channel. And the format that that comes in, it doesn't really matter to me, whether it's in the form of a reaction, whether it's in the form of a news-related video, I'm happy to make any of that content. And I'm basically, all of my videos, regardless of the format, is a Trojan horse for me to explain the law to people and whether that Trojan horse comes in the form of talking about a news Clipping or a movie I'm happy to make that content.
0: do you think that being youtube's lawyer has made you a better lawyer? yes, um,
1: in a, in a number of different respects. One is that the sheer breadth of the topics that I have learned in furtherance of of making the videos is incredibly broad, and so Generally speaking, a lawyer is not like a doctor, in the sense that a doctor, when you graduate from medical school, you kind of know how the whole body works. And the body, in terms of biology and physiology, isn't going to change. And a doctor has a superficial knowledge of just about everything when it comes to the human body. A lawyer, when they graduate from law school, knows almost nothing. Um, And it's it's an apprenticeship that you learn on the job. And you tend to go deep into really small areas. And so the breadth of the things that I have learned in furtherance of the, of the channel I think makes my knowledge much, much broader than your average attorney. Um, I would say it has really made me a better educator because I've just put in so many reps in distilling these <laughs> things, getting feedback from the audience. This resonated, this did not. Um, I have... I've definitely become a better educator and a better legal educator than I was initially. so so that's fulfilling too. Um, which
0: I can you
1: know, i think I think lawyers serve a very valuable service um, <laughs> in society. Not everyone agrees, but I think everyone agrees that educators <laughs> fulfill a valuable sure, role sure. Uh,
0: i can I can already fill uh, I, I can already feel the the tweet mentions filling up with the doctors saying, uh, are arguing the other side, I, I'm going to assume that the doctor argument would be that while the body doesn't change, medicine does, uh, and that is not to, uh, to to I don't know take an unnecessary uh, uh, dissonant uh, perspective on what you're saying, but but rather I think I think that supports what you're saying. I think that um, for a doctor, you you learn how it works and the ways in which it changes are changes that are uh, above the core body of knowledge. Whereas for a lawyer, the core body of knowledge itself is what's constantly changing. Um, I, coming into this, I I wouldn't have asked that question if I didn't suspect where the answer was gonna go. Although that would have been hilarious if you're like, no, I'm way shittier now. Uh, (laughs) Because I would have assumed, uh, for rightfully or not, I would have assumed coming into this conversation that you doing this job for for this much time may have softened up your your skills, uh, softened up your your approach to if you had to go into a courtroom or if you had to work a, a a case, um, only because like you'd in my mind, you would have been out of practice. But hearing you talk, it's it, it actually sounds like the sorts of things you have to do to prep for a case, the sorts of things that you have to do to be a uh, lawyery are the, the same things you're doing now. That's genuinely surprising for me.
1: Yeah. I mean that's exactly right. And also your average interaction with a judge, let alone a jury, is that this judge might have spent five minutes looking over your case before dealing with whatever hearing you have to deal with that day. And you're number 19 on the docket out of 50 hearings that morning. And so a lot of a litigator's job is actually distilling the important parts of your case to someone who actually is not that knowledgeable about either the facts or necessarily the important law that's at issue. So, um, you know, my public speaking, I think, has gotten better. Uh, my researching has probably gotten better. Um, and, you know, the procedure of litigation is just honestly just not that hard. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, that I'm a better lawyer now um, in, in a lot of the, like, soft sort of persuasive aspects of it, which is a large part of, of the practice of law.
0: Do you think, uh, as I was coming into the office today, I was thinking about the, the concept of YouTube experts, uh, mostly, uh, in the context of, uh, like the gurus and the coaches and the, the, the people who like the, what's the old thing? Like those who can do those who can't do teach. Uh, I think it was Woody Allen who said those who can't teach, teach Jim. I would say those who can't teach become YouTube gurus, uh, i'm not a fan of that kind of not a fan of that that uh th- that part of the, the the cottage industry around uh being a youtuber i think that it's often predatory and there are plenty of people out there who couldn't cut it um never really put their weight into it but were desperate to build a business and so just made a couple of friends in decent places and are now trading on their names and have stacked that deck so high that they can collect the consulting dollars and the guru dollars and publish their, their PDF books and whatever. Uh, when you look at the, the, the pantheon of YouTube experts, and I don't mean the, the gurus, but I mean like people on YouTube who are experts in things, you have a law degree. I've seen it. I've seen it. I have B roll of it somewhere. Uh, I know that you went to a school or at least you Photoshopped a law degree. I'm pretty sure Dr. Mike went to medical school. There are plenty of people who are on YouTube uh, presenting themselves as experts who don't really have expert level credentials in the thing that they're talking about. And I think it's a very popular thing to do to have opinions broadcast. And if you find an audience, the validation of that audience, it's really easy and attractive to read that as a validation of your ideas and the universe validating you. Do you, in your position as somebody who you went to school for this shit. You studied this shit. You did this for a living, for realsies. When you look out at, at YouTubers who are presenting themselves as experts in different arenas, and different genres, different subject matter, does that frustrate you?
1: Yes and no. Um, <sighs> people have differing opinions on the value of law school. And that is the case whether you're talking about actual practicing lawyers or whether you're talking about YouTube lawyers. And in some respects, I'm I'm so ridiculously overqualified for this job. You know, I went to a top law school. I worked for some of the best law firms in the country. I practiced at an extremely high level and represented, you know, Fortune 500 companies um, and have a, a high success rate. And I'm a trial lawyer. And, and then you can look to some of the other YouTube lawyers that are out there and... They graduated from law school. I don't think they have practiced in the areas that they're talking about. I don't think they've ever gone to trial, and that hasn't stopped them from opining. Sometimes the things that they say are accurate and interesting, and sometimes they're they're wildly not.
0: And no, no, no. What I'm saying, sorry. What I'm saying is not against other lawyers, but and I'll, I'll pick on him because we love him to death. He's our friend. Compare everything you just said about your bona fides. Thomas Frank thinks Notion is neat. You're both, like, the expert in the thing that you're talking about. Is that frustrating for you? Oh,
1: no. Um, I mean, I had an entire other career before starting in YouTube in which those bona fides were absolutely necessary. And I think that – I think there's an audience for people that are professionals and bring other perspectives to, you know, an industry that might otherwise be inundated with, um, you know, pretty faces – and boxers. But um you know, Thomas is good at what he does and I l- I would like to believe that the market will separate the wheat from the chaff and that the people who can't actually create results will have a bad reputation and will eventually just go away. Um and so yeah, I mean yeah, you know, it's 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 as with everything. There's going to be good ones and bad ones and you know to the point of the YouTube guru, I mean, this is a point where I think you and I disagree. I mean, I have gotten consultations from at least three different YouTube gurus, and every single one of them has provided value that to me was worth more than what I paid them. And I have continued to consult with many of them. And um, if for no other reason then sometimes getting someone else's perspective on things can be valuable, whether the actual advice is it may may not be. Um, I won't dispute the point that there's a whole bunch of people out there that are just preying on people who want to make it big on YouTube and think they're one consultation away. Those people are out there. Um, but the number, like, so much of what we do is not intuitive. And the number of things that those YouTube gurus taught me that I thought something was the case and it just wasn't. That is perhaps the most important thing. Um, I mean, it's what led to me actually starting the channel as it exists now. The channel started as singularly focused on law school-related content, and I was worried about losing that audience. I had about 15,000 subscribers, and I was worried about losing my audience of law students by making more general law-focused content. And if a couple people hadn't told me, like, you're an idiot, make this content, it's going to be gangbusters, I I wouldn't have ever made it because I was too risk-averse. So that's the kind of thing that helped me get to where I am now.
0: The, I I also recognize that the there's a, a slight bit of irony here where much of my role for you and many of the folks that I talk to on this show is being sort of that, that guru. The difference is that when it works, when you're successful, then that has downstream consequences for me. Uh, if I'm telling you to do things and they're not successful – then it's it's not like I'm just gonna you're gonna keep paying for my time. It's like if the numbers go up, if I'm actually moving the needle, um, the business makes money.
1: Well, look, I mean, I'm I, <laughs> as you know, I'm not afraid to push back uh, on uh, on things that I, I think are are incorrect, and and most you know more importantly, I've tested a lot of things that I had certain intuitions about, and you know, one particular example is that uh, we used to turn off AdSense for mm-hmm. sponsorships. And yep. the, the, the idea, which may have been true at one point, was that running mid-roll ads um, during your video would hurt your sponsored conversion, and because you make, as a proportion, a much higher amount on a sponsorship, it didn't make sense to turn on mid-rolls or other ads during the course of your, your video because the added money that you got, the marginal increase from AdSense didn't outweigh the loss from the, the sponsorship. And that didn't jive with what I was seeing, and so I tested out for like six months, experimenting with mid-roll ads on my channel, and then I took that data to you and said, I have seen no decrease in sponsorship revenue, and if, if anything, an increase in sponsorship revenue, while having mid-roll ads. And lo and behold, you know, now we, we sort of, it's written into the canon that you can have yeah. uh, ads, uh, so long as you don't place them close to your sponsorship ad read. Um, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have AdSense and you can have your sponsorship uh, on the same same video.
0: Yeah, uh, as soon as you showed up with the data, it's like, okay, this is not what we've seen before. Let's start experimenting. I think it was like a uh, a couple months we did like, hey, everybody just turn AdSense on. Let's see. Or I think we it was like a couple of sponsors we got an approval on this for. And we started running tests and sure enough, it didn't seem to hurt anything. It's like, okay, cool. Let's take it off. Looking back, I think that what happened was that the data did point us in this direction uh, early on. The people who had AdSense off, um, they performed better for sponsors universally over a pretty substantial chunk of time. When I look back, though, I think what might have happened was the people who were willing to run those experiments and do those tests were also the sort of people who were more interested and engaged with what the audience thought to begin with which was an indicator of a different kind of audience relationship. So those people were always going to do better with their sp- um, sponsor performance over time anyway. Uh, but it's when when you work in a data vacuum, you kind of have to go where the the data takes you. And at the time, uh, I don't want to name names, but we are working uh, back in those days with a number of like big institutional channels that um, – I'm not naming names, so I can just say this. They didn't really give a shit about their audience. They were just pumping stuff out or they wanted to be the brand and they just didn't put any effort at all into their sponsor reads. And the people who did, um, Wendover, Real Engineering, uh, the people who, uh, Real Life Lore, Second Thought, the people who really put the energy into let's build a great sponsor read in a way that like rewards the audience for paying attention, they saw giant jumps. And so they're... There's a couple of variables there that, that you know, may not have been possible to account for at the time. Um, and then as we moved more and more away from working with those sorts of institutional uh, style channels, uh, it became just more and more true. But the, the point there is that uh, you're 100% correct. As soon as we saw the data, let's verify the data in whatever we can. And if the reality changes, let's go where the reality takes us. If the data is different now, let's go yeah. where the data takes us. Not because well, the, the we're other, charging you a thousand dollars an hour to yeah, tell I you. Yeah, I mean, the, the other best.
1: interesting anecdote about that whole saga was that when the uh, when so many more people started turning on AdSense, um, it and 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 clicking the midroll, the sponsored conversions went down drastically, whereas mine did not. And luckily, uh, our um, data uh, specialist took a look at it, and and what we saw was that if you automatically place the mid-rolls, YouTube sees that there's a giant dip in audience retention right at your sponsorship. Oh, that must be the greatest part to put the, the mid-roll ad, <laughs> which screws up, because no one then gets to your sponsorship, because there's mm-hmm. an ad right there. Um, and I had always been placing my mid-rolls manually, oh, far apart from the sponsorship, at places where I, I thought it made sense for ad breaks, and yeah. so we, it, you know, we had to really look at the data and luckily we had people that really dug into it to see Actually that it wasn't part. that mid-rolls hurt. It was that really poorly placed mid-rolls would hurt your sponsorship. Otherwise, there was basically no effect. Uh,
0: the, the idea that YouTube would see the dip in retention at the start of the sponsor read as the best place to put an ad, I, I didn't know that. That was Laura, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we, we started experimenting, and then the, the talent agency said, oh, we need to turn off mid-rolls because they're killing conversions, and I just didn't. <laughs> I, I, basically, I had an entire year of making AdSense um, when I wasn't supposed to. So wait,
0: while you're on the record, I just want you to, to confirm that you uh, did not abide by the terms of the contract for a year.
1: Uh, I was not in privity
0: with that contract. <laughs> uh, I
1: was not bound by it. Uh there was a uh, it, it was the the IO and the MSA mm. between the talent mm. agency and the sponsor that uh I wasn't in privity with it. So I was not in breach of contract. well, um, I, I, well I, I, but uh, I was I was keeping an <laughs> eye on my conversions and it's so lucky that we have the conversion data and I had access to it. So I could run these experiments and see whether yeah. it was
0: hurting me or not.
1: And I, you know, getting frankly, the conversion
0: data is the magic. That's the that's the real difference. When you have that, you can yeah. do experiments like this. But it was always my philosophy that like
1: this is my money to experiment with. If, oh, sure. if I or my, you know, I, I should have the option to say, I don't care if it's going to hurt my sponsorship conversions. I'm going to run AdSense. Um, and so, uh, as it turned out, you know, I was I was able to run these experiments. I was able to see the click-through data, I was able to see the conversion data, and I, ju- you know, even though other people's conversions were going down, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I provided my own ad hoc data to Laura, the, the um, information specialist at the time, and and they were able to um, take a deeper dive and figure out the causation there. And, and now we live in a world where creators yeah. can make as much in sponsorship as they do from AdSense and vice versa.
0: That's incredible. Uh, shout out there to Laura Hedrick, who's now our chief marketing officer. Uh, that is exactly the sort of thing Laura would enjoy digging in on. So I'm not surprised. I didn't <laughs> know that. I didn't know that bit. That is really good context. Um, the The notion that you can go in and play with the data, I think that might be one of the bigger things that creators miss out on. Because all we normally look at is the AdSense bet, uh, Sorry, the um, the YouTube analytics bet, Right. Yeah. So, it, well,
1: uh, you know, I know I'm preaching the choir, but the, the data is incredibly important. And whether you put your head in the sand or not, you're still affected by the data because you know, we see lots of creators um, working with suspect sponsors um, for the payday. And maybe that payday mm-hmm. is significantly more than their regular sponsors. But... You you and look you might get a one-time payout and if you're not running that many videos per year It might make might total economic sense to get a huge payout from a crappy sponsor who never comes back But if you don't perform for that sponsor, you might not have the con- the conversion data But here's here's the, the the one simple trick that they hate if they come back you were ROI positive So you should ask for more money if they don't come back then you were not ROI positive positive and you didn't perform. So maybe you need to lower your rate if you want to work with that sponsor again, or maybe you just need to work with a different sponsor. And your performance will vary sponsor by sponsor. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all, but you know, whether you want the conversion data or not, a sponsor you know, only cares about one thing, and it's disgusting. No, uh, a sponsor cares <laughs> about whatever their KPI is. And it's probably conversions if you're dealing with internet-focused sponsors. Maybe mm. it's not. Maybe it's an awareness campaign. Um, who knows what... Maybe it's email signups. But um, whatever it is, they know what their KPIs are and they're, they have a target that they want to hit. And creators are bound by those targets, whether they are aware of those targets or not. So you might as well find out that information. If you
0: uh, my asterisk there for you, if they come back your ROI positive, maybe... Uh, It might be that they just see that there's potential for you to be with a few small tweaks. If they come back and they won't tell you how close you were, then you are definitely ROI positive. If they won't share (laughs) with you the context, if they won't say you weren't quite on goal, but we think that with these changes or because of these factors or whatever, if they're not sharing information and working with you, just assume that you're ROI positive and you should raise your rate. And if you try to raise your rate and they said that's too much – Ask for proof that it's too much. Now we're just giving advice. Yeah. So all yeah. you kids out there listening to this show, starting your YouTube channels, that's how you do things. Uh, the business of being a YouTuber, uh, God, even that, I hate saying YouTuber. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. Uh, why are we giving YouTube all this credit for our work? Good, good deal for them. Great branding for them. Uh, the, the business of being an online creator, online video creator Uh, is it's so early on this industry barely exists. This industry just started about 10 minutes ago. So it's, it's difficult to project what business is going to mean 10 years from now. Uh, I, I think it's the more information you can collect. Look, the, if I have a final thought on the, the, the guru consultant thing, uh, do you think that it is necessary to have those people or could we build better tools over time to make that information and that advice free? Yes and yes.
1: Good. The, the tools should be better and I know we're actively making them. Uh we mainly mm-hmm. being you. The the tools you know can be better and the the contracts can be better. You can bake yep. it into contracts that you get data that you wouldn't otherwise have. And as the industry matures, I hope that that our perspective wins out um, in the sense that more people start caring about these things because, you know, they're, they're going to be affected by it or not. I think there will always be a place for one-on-one consulting that a one-size-fits-all tool is great. But sometimes one size doesn't fit all. And if you have people that have institutional knowledge and can— tell you something that applies to you in that particular situation and can tell you what other advice is important at this particular time and place, I think that's important as well. And I have always found value in that, whether it is a YouTube guru, and not all are created equal, um, or whether it's tennis lessons. Having someone who knows what they're doing and can take what they know change the language and the message so that it resonates personally with you based on what you understand and your particular situation. I think that's incredibly valuable, and uh, I will always pay for that kind of advice, especially people that can disabuse me of things that I think are true that just aren't.
0: All right. We've, I think, gone over on time a little bit. There's so much left for us to argue about. Uh, Can we do another one of these in real life? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We, we don't even need to film it. We could just hang out and talk. I guess, but then there's no content. I mean, I'm I'm a very
1: interesting person, and I have loads more to talk about. So I'm I'm happy to uh, to do another one in person.
0: All right. Uh, for more of the interesting things Devin has to say, it's what YouTube.com/legallegal. Yep, that's me. legal, legal on the Twitter's uh, Nebula.tv/legallegal. Any final words there?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll see you in court. I guess. <laughs>